Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, biographer and historian Andrew Roberts discusses his book, George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch. The moderator is historian and author Lisa Marie Griffith. The episode was recorded via Zoom on the 10th of October, 2021. Andrew, on behalf of the Dublin History Festival, I'm delighted to welcome you back to Dublin. Unfortunately, virtually this year, but to what would have been at the beginning of the reign of George III, the second city in the empire. Um, Your biography is really wonderful and I'm looking forward to digging into um, the very long reign of George III. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Lisa Marie. It's a delight to be back. I might start off, if you don't mind, digging into some of the kind of personal relationships of the Hanoverians, because I think anytime you kind of get into a biography of famous people, and in particular royalty, the family relations really becomes fascinating. Um, And the Hanoverians have been described as one of the most dysfunctional families to ever sit on the throne of Great Britain. And Really, that kind of jumps out at the beginning of the book. And one of the things that I was amazed by is in particular the relationship between George II and his son, Frederick, who was the father of George III. And George II and his wife really have a terrible relationship with Frederick. Yes, they um, they hated their, their son. Um, the As you said, the Hanoverians have a very strange dysfunctional thing. It's an intergenerational loathing, effectively. Uh, George I also hated his son, George II. Uh, and unfortunately, uh, George IV ended up hating his father, George III. So um, the only break in this is between George III and his father, Frederick, Prince of Wales, uh, who died when George III was 12. But the hatred, as you say, I think that the prize goes basically to uh, George II versus um, Frederick, Prince of Wales, because... Uh, George II and his wife, Queen Caroline, actually celebrated when, his, uh, when their son died and then left his body to uh, uh, not be buried at Westminster Abbey for two weeks. So poor old George III, as the 12-year-old grandson, effectively, was left with the decomposing corpse of his father in the room above until finally they got round to, uh, to burying him. So, yeah, uh, and, and then after that, he had a terrible relationship understandably, I think, under those circumstances with uh, George II, who boxed his ears and uh, and abused him uh, physically. And this used to happen at Hampton Court, which was the palace that George II lived in. And um, it, it so sort of traumatised him that he refused ever to step foot there again. When he was told much later on in his reign that part of it had burnt down, he said how sad he was that the whole thing hadn't burnt down. Really astonishing. And even just some of the stories um, in the biography that kind of delve into that relationship, very poignant. It does have to be said, though, that luckily for George III, he has this really wonderful relationship with his father before he dies. And then later on with his mother, who takes great care of him. Both of them are very invested in particular in his education and give him this really wonderful education Um, One of the things that really struck me is that um, George was, they set out from the beginning to raise George and educate him to be an Enlightenment king um, with all that that kind of meant. And I was struck as well that he was the first monarch to learn science, for instance. Um, And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about his education. Yes, that's right. I mean, it, it had its own problems, of course, having a mother who was widowed for so long, because not least the uh, the rumour went round that she was sleeping with George III's tutor, the Earl of Bute, who George III later made uh, as one of his prime ministers early on in his reign. And so people thought that it was uh, what they called petticoat government, that uh, she had in, should sort of inveigled the Earl of Bute into the premiership and so on. But George III himself he knew perfectly well that this was not true was traumatised by this as well. And when his mother, his beloved mother, uh, who actually was a blameless woman and a philanthropic woman and, a, and, a, and not at all the sort of political figure that she's been made out to be, 
When she was uh, buried at Westminster Abbey, the crowd booed her coffin and, and jeered as it was taken through the streets to be buried. So, so that in, even in that sense, the, the family managed to sort of be a source of, of uh, pain to him. The answer is, of course, that Butte, in fact, was a, a hugely enlightened figure. He was interested in botany, science, as you, as you mentioned. He was a linguist. He was a uh, highly impressive figure. Not a great politician, as it turned out, when he became prime minister. But as far as a tutor was concerned, he was as good as it got. And he also introduced uh, George to architecture. And of course, the glories of art- uh, Georgian architecture, I hardly need to mention that to somebody who uh, lives in Dublin, is one of the glories of the age. And this was largely down to William Chambers and Adam and Wyatt and Soane and all of these extraordinary fine architects that were promoted by George III, who also, when it came to science, built up the largest collection of scientific instruments uh, in the world at that time. If you ever go to the Science Museum in London, the whole of the second floor, pretty much, is dedicated to this extraordinary collection of scientific instruments. That's amazing. I didn't realise about the scientific instruments in that collection. He has been called the most cultured monarch to hold the throne of Great Britain and you really can see it in the book that comes through his kind of dedication to learning and in particular I really liked how you delved into his creation of his library and he's such an amazing bibliophile and I loved when you talked as well about the relationship with Samuel Johnson. Yes the library that he built up at Buckingham House now Buckingham Palace which he bought for his wife Queen Charlotte in 1761 was uh, it, it wound up being 80,000 books. And the great thing about it was that uh, he, he let scholars and, and learned people into uh, the house to, to use his library. Uh, it, wasn't just, uh, it wasn't just for him. And uh, one of the people who used it quite a lot was Dr. Johnson. And they met in 1764 in the library and had a long conversation, which Johnson, when Johnson came away, he, he said that he had been, you know, he was hugely respectful of, of George's intellect, which is something that has been under attack. The weak historians for 200 years tried to make George out to be thick. And also Tom Paine, the, uh, the hugely best-selling American propagandist, at least English-born, but uh, American citizen propagandist, was a, um, he called him the royal brute. And yet this is the man who set up the Royal Academy, who um, bought the longest telescope in the world, who had the planet Uranus, named after him, and who bought half of the pictures in the Royal Collection, which today is the largest private art collection in the world. Yet, actually, while you're talking about all of the charities that he supported and all of the learned institutions and the collection of his library, he was actually a very frugal monarch and really watched his money. And I guess in the same way, he had that kind of approach to national debt and the finances of Britain. Um, so it's not like he's spending all around him. And, you know, it's reflective of that. He is spending in a very particular way. And very much not on himself, really. I mean, he, he wore the same kind of clothes. He dressed like a normal English uh, gentleman at a time when if you looked over the uh, other side of the, um, of the channel, you had uh, the Bourbons who were uh, dressing up like uh, peacocks and Christmas trees day in, day out. He was a, uh, yes, as you say, he was frugal. Unfortunately, of course, this wasn't the case with his son, George IV, who had compulsive buying disorder. And he spent on himself and on his, on his clothes and on his uh, coaches and so on. Uh, he was at the most extraordinary degree, to the point that it was almost as much as uh, Britain was spending on the Royal Navy uh, at the time. He really was the Imelda Marcos of the late 18th century. And, uh, of course, the king hated that, being frugal himself, as was his wife. Uh, Charlotte. He absolutely hated it. And it was one of the reasons for this, one of the many reasons for this intergenerational conflict continuing into the second part of the Hanoverian era. And father and son in that way and others are really chalk and cheese. For instance, one of the things that really stands out, I guess, having grown up and seeing the bad relationship that his father had with George II, um, George III, when he becomes monarch, immediately settles down and takes it very serious. You know, he's king now, he needs his wife um, and he gets married through an arranged marriage in 1761. He sees his bride, is it the day before or the day of the wedding? Day of the wedding, literally six hours before. He, he met her for the first time six hours before they were married. I know, I mean, to modern 
to modern ears, it's a completely weird thing for uh, any couple to have to undergo that kind of thing. But what was understood and expected was that the king would, would marry for this gymnastic reason, but would wind up, of course, finding love with some mistress. But what happened with George III was extremely unusual. In fact, he was the only one of the Hanoverian monarchs who never took a mistress because he fell in love with his wife uh, after he had married her. And uh, she was a um, she was a very uh, demure, intelligent, hardworking, philanthropic lady, quite unlike the, uh, the depiction of her in Bridgerton, um, the uh, TV show. She was a, uh, a sort of somebody never happier than when reading and listening to music. So actually, they uh, gelled together absolutely wonderfully until we're obviously going to come on to his uh, lunacy until in uh, one bout of it in 1804, it became completely impossible for her ever to share a bed with him again and uh, the separation. But it, even you mentioned there that they shared a bed. Um, this was very unknown in royal courts as well. It's a testament really to, I guess, how lucky both of them are that they find each other um, and that the marriage works out so well and that it is such a marriage of love. Well, it must have been it must have been nerve wracking for her. She's a, uh, a 17 year old girl who um, has never been outside Mecklenburg Strelitz which is a small dukedom in uh, Germany. And she then uh, makes a long journey by sea to England, uh, during which everybody in her entourage is seasick except for her. And she spends the time learning God Save the Queen uh, on the... God Save the King, I'm sorry, uh, on the harpsichord. So uh, then she marries this person, stays up until three o'clock in the morning, and then for the next week goes to balls where she meets people that she's never met before, clearly. And... uh, and has to learn a new language as well. So all in all, it must have been pretty traumatic, but she got through it extremely well. It it must have been phenomenally intimidating. They just seem so lucky when you read about it in the book. And And then they wind up, of course, having 15 children. Um, So so there are historians who complain that that she was hideously ugly. I don't believe that's true at all, if you look at the paintings and... uh, and some of the courtiers' remarks. It was a genuine love match. Uh, obviously, there was a physical side to it if there were 15 children. And she proved to be a very good mother. The question later is, of course, whether it's a systemic problem that causes so many of the children to go off the rails. I, I was going to um, mention, actually, so while they marry um, and then find love, One of the difficulties that George's siblings and their children have is that in the middle of the 18th century and towards the end of the 18th century, this idea of marrying for love becomes more popular. And yet it's not feasible for monarchs or royalty to do that. Um, And yet George ends up in a difficult situation because his brothers begin to have these secret marriages with somebody that they love rather than arranged matches. And that leads to difficulty as well for his children. Well, it it leads to difficulties. And then it also leads to um, legislation, the Royal Marriages Act of 1772, which which is still in force today, uh, in fact, uh, where princes have to gain the permission of the sovereign before they're allowed to marry. So actually, uh, Prince Harry asked the Queen's permission before he he married uh, Meghan Markle, for example. And this was because otherwise they weren't, wouldn't be able to declare these marriages where some of them had, one of George III's children had 10 illegitimate children. And it had all sorts of, uh, they had all sorts of, um, of uh, political and, and social ramifications, this kind of behaviour. And so the king did try and keep a, a lid on it with the Royal Marriages Act, which actually did um, the exact opposite. It, it, made, uh, it made the whole situation worse, in fact, because they went ahead with the marriages um, which therefore were illegal, and therefore the children were automatically all illegitimate and um, and frankly all hell brokers. Yes, and there seems to be quite a list of bigamists, for want of a better word. Uh, there's lots of double marriages going on in the book, and those relationships are so interesting. Um, I think one of the other things that I love about um, political biographies in particular is watching how personal relationships between important political figures have this huge impact on national and international events. And that comes through so often in so many ways in the book. And you mentioned, for instance, Lord Butte, who is his governor um, responsible for his education. 
but who steps in at a time when George III doesn't have a father. George II is being horrendous to him um, and he becomes his father figure. And so George puts him uh, in position as prime minister when he takes the throne. Um, and there's so many of those relationships that kind of have a big impact in national and international events. And I was wondering if you could talk about any in particular that you think have a big impact well, that you're, you're absolutely right. That one, of course, is is the first, um, and he uses Lord Bute to uh, push through Parliament the uh, approval of the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Seven Years' War, which was uh, quite unpopular with the uh, with the London populace. They pelted um, Bute's carriage and uh, booed him in the streets and so on. Uh, but he did get this peace treaty through. You then see a bad personal relationship with George Grenville, who uh, is the Prime Minister at the time of the passing of the Stamp Act, which causes so much trouble in America. And he, in the end, forces Grenville's resignation, not because of anything to do with the Stamp Act, with with which he sees eye to eye with Grenville, but just simply because he finds him a a prolix bore and, and can't bear the sight of him. You get some people like Lord North, who he grew up with, because uh, Lord North's father had been his governor as well at a different period, and who he had known as a childhood friend. There were six years in between, but nonetheless, he had uh, never gone to school and only knew the people, uh, the children of the court, and Lord North was one of them. He stays prime minister for 12 years at a completely disastrous time for for Britain. It was the uh, the worst moment since the loss of the Angevin lands in the 14th century when Lord North was Prime Minister. And then he has these positive relationships with uh, William Pitt the Elder and William Pitt the Younger, who were really the only two truly brilliant Prime Ministers of the 14 Prime Ministers who he appointed. Phenomenal, 14. Um, so you set out to tackle this idea of George III's reputation. And of course, he has possibly, arguably, the worst reputation in America because he is the king um, when America revolts. Um, And the book really investigates how this reputation arose. And you do an awful lot in the book to actually overturn the idea that George III really wasn't the tyrant that they set out to depict him as. Um, And I was wondering, could you talk a little bit about George's kind of opinions of America before or the 13 colonies before war and how that changes during the course of war? Well, they were very positive, in fact. Um, He was interested in America. Many of those books that we were talking about earlier from his library were about America. He had a huge collection, some 40,000 topographical maps that he was interested in, and a lot of those are of America. He met the Cherokee delegation in 1764, um, had uh, conversations with every American who uh, came to court. He, there was no sense that he was an anti-American or, or despised Americans or anything like that. In the conversations that he had with the royal governors when they came back to England, you know, he, he portrayed a great interest in American uh, society and economics. So the the picture of him as being some kind of sort of distant, sinister figure thousands of miles away who had no uh, interest at all in his colonists uh, is uh, is a completely wrong one. He never visited America, of course, but and he never visited Ireland either. He was king of Ireland. He never went visited Scotland. He never went north of Worcester or west of Plymouth. He never visited. He was elector of Hanover. And he never even visited Hanover. So you have this sense of a of a man who had enormous as we mentioned earlier, scientific and agricultural and, uh, and literary interests, who nonetheless didn't have any actual curiosity about going abroad or to his own um, dominions in, uh, in the British Isles. So, you know, it's a very strange thing, really. Uh, he uh, had the Industrial Revolution took place from the 1780s onwards, and he never went down a coal mine or to a factory, or I think on one occasion he saw a carpet factory in Axminster, um, and that was it. You always get, though, a sense of shyness from that. Um, he's afraid to go out into the world and he's happy to learn about it from books in a library. And I mean, it is astonishing. It is for somebody who who seems so interested in it. But I think what I felt certainly one of um, the difficulties in his reign is that the press have such a huge freedom during this period. They go completely unchecked. 
Um, the printing press, there's all these developments in the printing press. Paper is becoming cheaper. Printing is cheaper. And so anyone can print anything that they like. And this seems to really damage his reputation in America during this period, but also in Britain. Yes. I mean, it, part of that was self-inflicted. Obviously not the, car, the cartoons and the caricatures. He was unfortunately the, the, for him that he grew up in the greatest age, really, of, of uh, political satire in caricatures with um, Rowlandson and uh, Gilray and Cruikshank and all these other sort of great uh, and cr- crushingly vicious cartoonists. But, um, but much more seriously uh, was his one attempt, or at least his government's one attempt. He was a constitutional monarchy. He didn't take these decisions himself. They were taken by politicians in the cabinet. And, but he did go along very much with the attempt to try to silence and imprison John Wilkes, uh, the, uh, the most notorious journalist of the era, who was um, spreading this rumour, of course, about his mother, about uh, George's mother, Princess Augusta, sleeping with the Earl of Butte, and various other um, criticisms of uh, the king, which were entirely untrue, and which the king, perfectly understandably, wanted to try to check. However, the heavy-handedness with which the government went about it, and the terrible backlash, basically, that came from, from the uh, people who, uh, who, who loved reading these scurrilous newspapers, uh, made the whole thing much worse than it uh, would have been had he just done nothing about it and taken no notice of it. And especially, as you point out, especially in America, where it fed into a, an already existing desire to be independent of, of Britain and therefore the opportunity to make him look like a tyrant. One of the things I didn't realise, actually, um, was that the Declaration of Independence essentially falls into two parts. And the second part is a critique of George and a multi-pointed critique of George III. And it, it definitely seems like at that point, they've gone so far down the road towards independence that the Americans really are just calling George Britain, really, or Parliament. And they don't really seem to have that kind of understanding that Parliament has pursued a lot of the lines rather than George personally. That's right. And also, of course, all the previous monarchs, the nine previous monarchs going back to Elizabeth I, uh, had the same constitutional rights in America as George III had. And yet the Declaration of Independence uh, attacks him for them. And the Declaration of Independence is is a the first two paragraphs of it is a beautiful document. You know, it's uplifting. It says everything that needs to be said about uh, equality and justice and liberty in so few words, Shakespearean language. I mean, it's it's a, a beautiful, sublime uh, document. Then you get the second half, where there are 28 charges, personal ad hominem charges against George III, only two of which actually are true. Uh, but those two, the fact that um, he had the right to, or at least Parliament had the right to tax the colonies, and also that they had the right to veto legislation in the colonies, those two were enough to uh, justify the rebellion in, in and of itself. But uh, that doesn't mean you have to go along now, 200 plus years later, with the absurd 26 charges, many of which just simply don't hold water at all. The uh, uh, the whole of my chapter 13 is is dedicated really to to looking at all those charges and to see which ones uh, you know are true and which aren't and it's two that are and 26 that are complete rubbish frankly well, one of the things though i think you can probably well accuse him and, and the government of is a certain failure to face the reality of the situation in America during the course of the war. And they always think that they can either win or that they can sign a peace that will allow them to still have some kind of authority over America or a relationship in terms of government. Um, And like the ship has sailed at that point, but they still think they might be able to call something back. That's right. Yes, it, it does seem extraordinary that even as late as 1782, after the, um, the surrender, you'd, you'd already got the surrender of General Burgoyne at Saratoga in October 1777, and then the surrender of General Cornwallis at Yorktown in uh, October 1781. And yet still in 1772, the king is, and, the, and the cabinet, and indeed Lord North's successor, believe that it's possible, Lord Shelburne, believe that it's possible to uh, try to cobble together some kind of peace in which Britain was able to keep 
various nodal points along the uh, along the eastern seaboard, including New York and Charleston, which uh, and I think Newport, Rhode Island, was another one, which uh, was completely um, absurd. There was simply no way that the Continental Army, that the American rebels, having having got so far as to almost throw the British off the continent, would have agreed to a peace treaty that allowed them to uh, have these these extremely important ports in perpetuity. Um, George's reign is so long and you can see the empires expanding throughout the period. Now, obviously, they lose the 13 colonies, but it's expanding in India, um, in the West Indies, all over the world. There's more territory coming in under the British Empire. And yet one of the kind of staggering things to look at is how different each one of them is governed. And I wondered, is that something that George ever reflects on, how each of the countries is treated in such a different way? So you've got... Ireland with its Protestant parliament and then, you you know, different kinds of relationships in lots of other countries and, of course, slavery in some countries and the East India Company in India. Yes, no, there, there doesn't seem, it was very much a sort of haphazard way of, um, of going about it. Of course, famously, uh, the historians uh, Robinson and Gallagher in the 1960s talked about how the Empire, British Empire had been a, acquired in a fit of absence of mind. And there certainly doesn't seem to have been very much sort of... Um, uh, thought put into the process of uh, of how this was going to be sort of melded together. There were no sort of Commonwealth concepts that uh, that it was going to be run in the same way in in different places. You mentioned slavery, and I think it's a very important aspect. And I just like to say, almost as an aside, really, that in the course of one of the reasons that I've I've been able to write this uh, book in such a um, should we say uh, revisionist manner is that the Queen has put over 100,000 pages of documents from George III's papers onto the Georgian Papers programme, this wonderful programme that the King's College London has. And in those papers, there's a document from George III when in the 1770s he was uh, Prince of Wales, in which he denounces slavery. Uh, He says that the arguments for them are ludicrous and the whole system needs to be held up to execration. And of course, he never owned a slave in his life, never bought or sold one or had shares in the companies that did that. He signed the legislation to abolish um, the slave trade in 1807. But he never actually, again, this goes back a bit to his being a constitutional monarch, he never actually tried to abolish the slave trade. When there was a support of the majority for it in the House of Commons and the House of Lords, he didn't try to overturn that, which has to be you know, a blot on his historical escutcheon. Um, but uh, nonetheless, I think it does it does hark back to this idea of him being a constitutional monarch. They are fen- a phenomenal source to have, and it's something that you really um, exploit and go into um, throughout the book. And it's really amazing, actually, to see so much about his education and the education of a monarch. So before we come to maybe his period of unhealth, which, of course, is a, a huge thing that overshadows his whole reign, I do have to talk a little bit more about his relationship with his son, which is kind of extraordinary. And of course, I have to mention that, as you point out, George doesn't really travel very far. I mean, he's very much um, a British monarch. And one of the extraordinary things about him is he's the first British monarch in a, is it since Queen Elizabeth, perhaps, to be born in England? And he speaks English. And um, so he's very British. He doesn't go very far, not to Ireland. But of course, his son does come to Ireland and is popular for coming. The first king to come to Ireland without an invading army. Um, but they do have this extraordinary relationship where they're really chalk and cheese. That's right. And also George IV went up to uh, Scotland um, as well. Uh, I don't think he ever went to um, Hanover. Yes, he was a, a much better travelled monarch than his father, but that wasn't you know, difficult. His father only ever met one other European um, monarch in the whole of his 60-year reign. And that was Christian VII of Denmark, who was his who was his son-in-law. So, you know, he really didn't have that personal interaction with monarchs. And this might have been a very bad thing, in fact, uh, because at the time of the American War of Independence, Britain had no allies. Uh, we had France declare war on us in 1778, Spain in 1779, and Holland in 1780. And the um, allies that we could have looked to 
Russia, Austria, and so on, um, Russia, uh, we had managed to uh, to irritate, irritate or frustrate in the previous years. So, so there was a dearth of British diplomacy. Um, again, not necessarily his personal faults. You know, there were there were foreign secretaries to do that kind of thing, but um, but it was a a problem. And with regard to the relationship with his son, as you say, uh, it was it was sort of nigh on disastrous. But his son behaved so abominably. Uh, at one point, published private letters that the king had uh, written to him. Published them in the newspapers. You know, uh, he was constantly having endless mistresses who the king had to pay for their blackmail letters before they were published. Took no notice at all about this spiraling debt that he got into, knowing that one day he would be king and therefore Parliament would have to um, pay them off. But um, but I'm afraid George IV does come out as a as a rather despicable figure, frankly, from my book. He he definitely lacks, I guess, the intellect of George III, and he seems to rack up so many debts that anything he does. Is, comes across as very self-serving. And because of that, he's used as a political pawn, um, particularly, you know, when difficulties arise for George III. That's right. The, the, the radical Whigs, especially Charles James Fox, who, who befriend George, uh, Prince of Wales, and are hoping the whole way through that uh, George III is going to die soon. And when, of course, he does go mad and the Regency crisis takes place, they all assume that George the Fourth is going to bring them into government, and then he doesn't. He he betrays his uh, his oldest and closest friends the minute he becomes Prince Regent. So, you know, this really is a uh, this really is a man with very few redeeming qualities, except for his his um, beautiful taste in art. He has a he has a wonderful um, aesthetic temperament, and you can tell that from his uh, from his houses and his. Uh, and his art collection and so on, and the Brighton Pavilion and so on. But uh, but these are things, of course, that ultimately are paid for by the uh, taxpayer. I, I find that staggering as well that you mentioned that he never asked the cost of anything. And having, he's really, in that sense, not George III's son. George III is so frugal. And there are points that he's donating money to the national debt. And when food is scarce, um, George and Charlotte are eating very sparse and she talks about that, but none of that is happening with George IV. And of course, the big crunch point comes when he publishes personal correspondence between his father and himself. And he, even then, one of the things that I was astonished by is George III says he can't trust his son again, but he does I guess, keep things open? For a year, yes. They don't talk for a year. Uh, but then after that, there's um, there's yet another reconciliation because George the uh, George IV knows how to get round the king, which is by appealing to his mother, Queen Charlotte, and to their endless numbers of uh, si- his endless numbers of siblings, and uh, they are the ones who prevail on on George III to sort of let him back in. And the minute he is let back in, then he, the the purse strings are opened again, and he uh, and he winds up getting into enormous debts almost immediately. I, as I say, I do find it difficult. I have I have tried with this book, I promise, but I, I have found it difficult to find any redeeming features beyond this, this wonderful taste in art that you can't afford. Well, you've definitely mentioned something positive there. Yeah, he even his relationship with his wife, it, yeah, it is unbelievable. But it, again, it's that kind of delving into their personal relationships is so interesting and it, it makes it such a great part of the biography. It's a wonderful gag where, uh, of course, he himself has the most terrible, this is George IV again, the most terrible relationship with his wife, Caroline. And he bans her from the coronation and he tries to take their, their child away and he uh, behaves uh, disgracefully with any number of um, mistresses who he tries to in- get into her uh, ladies-in-waiting uh, positions and so on. And they, um, they absolutely wind up absolutely loathing one another. And then in 1821... When Napoleon Bonaparte has, uh, has died, uh, a courtier comes in and says to uh, to the Prince Regent, uh, sorry, the King by then, um, your greatest enemy is dead, Your Majesty. Is she, by God? That replies George the Fourth. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's you couldn't make it up. That's the problem. Um, I have to touch as well on the Catholic question. 
particularly um, because that overshadows so much politics in Dublin and in Ireland. And of course, I, I think I was really struck by the fact that George III, so he has this great relationship with Pitt, who he trusts. Pitt is um, fixing a lot of the problems in the national debt. He's a fantastic manager and he Pitt wants to support Catholic emancipation. I know around this time, George is taking delegations from prominent Catholic um, merchants from Dublin who go to see him. I actually studied one of them for my PhD um, and Pitt is pushing him in this direction and, and George will not budge, and, and this destroys their relationship. Yes, and, and Pitt's premiership as well, as well, of course. I think in part, um, the first thing to remember is that uh, unlike uh, earlier Hanoverians, and unlike a large number of people at that time, when only has to look at the Gordon riots of the 1780s, George was not a bigot. He was not an anti-Catholic bigot. He uh, made positive references to the Jesuits at the time of the French Revolution. He stayed with Catholics. He was the first king since the Glorious Revolution to actually stay with uh, with Catholics in their houses. He visited the chapel of Thomas Weld and other prominent Catholics and so on. So this is not a person who was some foaming low church Protestant bigot. What he was, though, unfortunately, really for um, Catholic emancipation was a true believer in the, in the actual wording of the coronation oath that he took at his coronation in 1761, which committed him to um, protecting the Protestant law, a Protestant religion as by law established, which he took to mean not having uh, giving the vote to the uh, uh, to the Catholics. You have to remember, of course, at that time that only about one in twelve uh, Britons had the vote. It wasn't considered a sort of human right to have the franchise in the same way that uh, that we assume it today. It was a very much a stratified society between those who did and those who didn't. And um, unfortunately, the uh, king also, of course, recognised, as I mentioned again and again, he was a constitutional monarch. And there was no majority, even in the cabinet. Pitt the um, Younger didn't have a majority in his own cabinet for Catholic emancipation. There certainly wasn't one in the wider government, and there certainly wasn't one in the House of Lords or the House of Commons. And there wasn't to be until nine years after the King's death. So um, understandably, some historians have wondered why they uh, suddenly sprung emancipation on the King without uh, having um, buttered him up beforehand, without having mentioned it beforehand. Uh, It it was suddenly brought up as as government policy by Pitt and by a very small number of people around him, including Lord Castlereagh. And some people think that actually after 17 plus years of being in, uh, in government, um, Pitt was exhausted. He uh, no longer wanted to, uh, to carry the burden, but he didn't want to resign on something less, less liberal, less enlightened, less forward thinking, less progressive than uh, the cause of Catholic emancipation. And I, and I slightly go along with that, I think. It seems like the two big... Um, issues that overshadow his reign are obviously the loss of the um, American colonies and his periods of mental unhealth. And you discuss a little bit about how that's been misdiagnosed in the past. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Yes, everyone. uh, One of the things that everyone knows about George III is that he had porphyria, um, this uh, physiological uh, illness. But uh, it's become completely clear to uh, medical experts in the last 10 years or so that that's not true. Back in the 1960s, a uh, mother and son team, uh, medical team, put forward this concept of porphyria. But um, now that people half a century have looked into their methods and their their rather, frankly, intellectually dishonest methodology, um, it's no longer um, possible to, uh, to continue with that. The experts on porphyria and also on, uh, on manic depression and uh, particularly on the bipolar disorder side of manic depression, pretty much all agree now that it wasn't porphyria at all, it was that. And so I go into this in the appendix in some detail. I don't want to put off any of uh, our viewers, but quite a lot of it is to do with the colour of urine and faeces uh, that the king produced and the ways in which it could be the colour bluish purple colour that comes from porphyria and the other ways that that might have happened, including um, the medicines that he was taking, 
um, eating beetroot, for example, is one of them, and uh, and other things. So, so the um, one thing that, or one of the two things that uh, people know about George III is completely wrong. And also, the idea that it was his obstinacy that lost us the colonies and that he was a tyrant, I think, is also completely wrong. Um, thank you so much for talking a little bit more about that. Could you talk a little bit about George III's relationship with his daughters? Yes, they, he, he loved his daughters, but the drawback was, for political and strategic reasons, they could only marry uh, Protestant princes. And the only ones around, really, were in Germany uh, and some in Scandinavia. And so you have um, a terrible situation that, that basically only one of them gets married to, uh, to someone like that. But the rest stay in what they call the nunnery which was a, a house near Windsor, which was not a nunnery at all. It was just them trying to, uh, to sort of satirise the fact that they weren't allowed to have relationships. But they did. Indeed, one of them had an illegitimate child. And um, both of them with, um, with courtiers, with soldiers, um, effectively. Uh, one of these was essentially, to all intents and purposes, a marriage, although not obviously legally one. It was kept from the king. You know, uh, George III never, never discovered this even though she was, as I say, sort of almost living as husband and wife with this, uh, with this colonel. So um, it's not a happy story, but again, it's a systemic thing that um, comes from the politics of the era and the strategy of the era. You couldn't just marry off the child of a monarch to an international enemy, a rival. Um, that just made no sense whatsoever, which cuts out an awful lot of the, um, of the families of of Europe at the time, exactly. Did you regret having to leave anything out of the book or have you come? Oh. <laughs> you always regret, you always regret. And in fact, I cut, uh, I cut, I think, 20,000 words uh, when uh, when the publishers pointed out that, uh, that it was getting a little bit um, hefty because uh, there are 100 pages of notes, bibliography and index at the back, which I never really have been able to understand now in the era of the internet, where you can't just put that all of that um, paraphernalia on the website, the index, which of course you do need for a, for a serious and substantial work. But um, yes, no, I, I cut out lots of things, but I never cut out um, a theme. Um, I, I, I made the themes all shorter. So there isn't a subject that I've just completely missed. I don't believe, I hope not anyhow, but what I have had to do is to... Uh, is to truncate various things that I'd have loved to have gone into in more detail. Okay. Um, so somebody else here is making an Irish connection. Before his marriage, George III fell in love with Lady Sarah Lennox, whose sister was Emily, Duchess of Leinster. And had she married George, he would have become uncle of Lord Edward Fitzgerald, the son of Sarah's sister, Emily, Duchess of Leinster, who was one of the leaders of the 1798 rebellion. I know. that. You know, that is, that's a very good uh, what if. Of, uh, of history. I mean, two things could have happened. Either he, he wouldn't have become one of the leaders of the 1798 uh, rebellion, or, um, or George might have been able to have been brought uh, closer to the whole idea of a, uh, a further relief of the Catholics. I mean, there was the Catholic Relief Act of 1793, of course, but it didn't go terribly far. Uh, and then you have the huge imbroglio after the of the uprising of um, the Act of Union, which was was pushed through in in a, a frankly as corrupt a way as the 18th century could uh, allow, which was which was pretty corrupt. So it is a what if of history. If we'd had some people who uh, maybe uh, understood and appreciated Ireland a bit closer to him, uh, then things might have gone differently. But uh, you have to remember, of course, that like most of the rest of the Hanoverians, and like all of them, they entirely depended on their Protestantism for where they were. Had it not been for uh, William of Orange and uh, the Protestant succession, you know, they would have um, been electors of Hanover and not uh, kings of, um, of Britain. So you know, they, uh, in a sense, were the prisoners of their own uh, uh, religious destiny. Um, somebody else here is asking, how had British society changed over the 60 years of his reign? Hugely, um, yes. He it started off under George the Second being pretty um, loose, and uh, and then when he became king, he he put out a proclamation uh, against uh, against vice and tried to to crack down on 
on um, pornography and various other things like that. It uh, it didn't really work. The um, the 18th century, as we discussed earlier, you know, what people people did write pretty much what they wanted. Um, they did have the laws of libel, of course, but uh, it was um, it got more and more loose, especially the further up you got in the social scale. The uh, the aristocracy. Um, I, I used the Brooks's Club betting book quite a lot, and the basically the the drinking and whoring and gambling and and behaviour at, at Brooks's Club, the heart of the radical Whig establishment, was uh, was entirely dissolute, and uh, he sort of hated that, uh, and they despised him as a prig for hating that. During the uh, French Revolution, things do tend to calmed down a bit, not least, I suppose, because the aristocracy looked across the channel and saw what was happening to their, uh, to their French uh, equivalents. But then you get the regency where George IV takes over as Prince Regent during the King's periods of manic depression, and which get longer and longer. And in the end, actually, of 10 years, of the last 10 years of his life, he's, he's mad as well as senile and blind and deaf. And uh, so... So the Prince Regent, who's himself immensely dissolute, and I, I go into some of the parties where, you know, you, you have the Prince of Wales throwing up in the corner um, whilst the, the dinner's still going on. Um, and, and so you have at the end of his life also a huge return to dissolution. But by that stage, he's uh, cooped up in Windsor Castle. It does seem like a very sad ending um, for George III, particularly because he is separated from his wife at that point. It's very kind of poignant end. And I guess for her, um, her and George had been critics of their son and she has to go back to her son for protection at that point. Yes, and they and they never visit him either. That's the other sad thing, you know. I mean, he is, as I say, uh, senile at that stage, but um, but he's at Windsor, you know, it, it's it's not... It's not far. They um, they were living in a different part of the uh, of the town at the time, and yet they only seem to visit him once every every sort of five years or so. So um, it's a truly um, horrible and sad ending. He didn't even know that the Battle of Waterloo had been won, and the the Napoleon Napoleonic Wars that he'd been so uh, keen on ensuring a British victory in had uh, finally ended in that victory. It's yeah, it is very staggering to vi- to visit him every five years. Like very, very sad. Is particularly as you say when that proximity um, is so close to each other. Um, it's rather shocking. Have you decided on another biographical subject, or are you taking a break from biographies after all your hard work over the past decades and more? I wish no. I, I I'm I'm afraid I've got a mortgage. I can't uh, take uh, time off, off work. I'd love to, but uh, impossible. No, I'm going to be actually funny enough. My next uh, biographical subject is of someone who was um, born in Dublin. It's a um, chap lizard in um, uh, on the on the outskirts of Dublin at that time, anyhow. And uh, that's Lord Northcliffe, Alfred Harmsworth, Lord Northcliffe, who later was the owner of the Daily Mail and the Times, and who at the outbreak of the First World War was uh, the owner of 40% of British newspapers, so by circulation. So, of course, an immensely powerful figure, uh, somebody else who actually also went mad at the end of his life. I don't know what it is that's drawn me towards um, towards <laughs> that, but uh, nonetheless, in his uh, by the time he died, he was also... Uh, absolutely um, terribly afflicted by mental illness. And I think actually talking about mental illness is one of the good things, I think, about um, being able to bring out a book now on George III is that we don't have the same stigma attached to mental illness that lots of historians did have in the earlier part of, well, certainly through the 20th century uh, and earlier. And um, so it's not considered a sort of moral failing in the way that the weak historians attach to George III. There was one one 1950s historian who said that he thought that George III had gone mad because he was forced to make love so often to his hideous wife. I mean, that is something you would never, ever in a million years consider today, let alone write in a history book, and rightly so. And so I think it's a, it's a very good thing that um, I've been able to write in a much more enlightened and liberal-minded era. Absolutely. Um, we are coming towards the end of our time, so I have 
one last question, um, which uh, was, what was the reaction of the royal family in Britain to um, the execution of the royal family in France during the French Revolution? That's a very good question. There, they, there was um, a period of mourning. The whole court went into mourning. Um, the king and queen cancelled their social engagements, didn't go to the theatre, um, cancelled the concerts they had arranged and so on. Even though, of course, it had been Louis the Sixteenth, whose um, declaration of war against Britain uh, in 1778 had turned the American Revolution into a global war and ensured, essentially, that we lost it because it was a French fleet off uh, Yorktown that um, meant that the British could not reinforce Lord Cornwallis. So, you know, he had been instrumental in in. Uh, uh, our defeat in the American War of Independence, along with the American patriots and the Continental Army and you know, great generals like Washington. So you have this uh, this situation where his, his rival and greatest rival in Europe and enemy, essentially, had died. But the way he died, being um, guillotined by revolutionaries, was obviously something that was, uh, was absolute anathema to George. And, and he very much supported the, um, the anti-peace party. He didn't want to make peace with a regicide um, country like France. He, uh, and this is a very important aspect in the terms of how Napoleon ultimately was defeated, because when Prussia was at war with France for 53 months, from 1792 to 1815, uh, and the um, Russians for 55 months, and the Austrians for 108 months, Britain was at war with France in that period for 242 months, so more than all of the rest of them put together. And that was absolutely instrumental in bearing down on French trade and exports and so on. And, of course, the various military defeats that it suffered in the, uh, in the uh, peninsula and uh, at Waterloo. Dublin expands so much during George III's reign. And one of the things that is really striking about this book is so many of the historic figures who make up the statues on our streets and the names of our streets are in this book. So you will learn so much about Dublin during this period by reading this book. Andrew, this is such a fantastic book. Thank you so much. It's been really great to chat and thank you. I hope I haven't monopolized you too much. Um, no, no to all you. I was going to say, you have not in the slightest degree. Thank you very much indeed. All, all I was going to say was I hope that when my next book comes out, as I say, who's essentially somebody who was born in, uh, in Dublin, you'll invite me back and I can actually uh, come in person, which has proved to be impossible this time, sadly. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter, where we're at, at HistFest. Thank you.